0: in this episode. I
1: think philosophy has a strong ethical obligation as well as intellectual obligation to advocate that we satisfy the needs of others and we look for kinds of governments such as socially responsible democracies that do in fact meet these needs. If we've got that, then we've got a wonderful package. Then we can really say that we're getting philosophy right, but we're also getting the science right and we're getting the world right because there is a world to be gotten right rather than not just something to make a bunch of stories about. Hey
0: everyone, welcome to this conversation that I had with Professor Paul Pagard, a cognitive scientist and philosopher and the author of myriad interdisciplinary books all the way from sociology to philosophy of science, artificial intelligence, and of course, cognitive scientists. Uh, He is a prolific writer, in fact, I did mention this in the episode, but also after we stopped recording, he's written multiple books and published a lot on a variety of fields. And I found this episode in particular to be a very informative episode if you're interested in cognitive scientists, uh, cognitive science, pardon me, um, AI and analytical philosophy, because I think he did mention a lot of blog posts, different thinkers, books, uh, and, and, and a variety of sources of information where hopefully I'll, I'll leave the link to all of them down below in the description, but also hopefully you could use them to do your own studying and do your own research and investigations because he's a well-read person, but also he has the ability to bring together all these ideas from, uh, from a variety of fields and do it very clearly and succinctly. And his recent work is on misinformation, which is a very interesting field. Again, a cognitive scientist writing on misinformation, which you'd think is uh, generally found in a field like sociology or political science. But he had some interesting uh, insights from the field of cognitive science too. Um, And I gotta say, the other thing I do appreciate about him is that he's very candid. He says things as it is. Uh, There's no beating around the bush uh, and he gets the point immediately. And as a result of that, we also managed to uh, cover a variety of topics in the short amount of time we had for the uh, podcast. Saying all that, without further ado, uh, I want to introduce Professor Paul Thagard a bit more formally. Professor Paul Thaygard is a philosopher and cognitive scientist. He is distinguished professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Waterloo and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, the Cognitive Science Society and the Association of Psychological Science. He's authored myriad interdisciplinary books, including a treatise on mind and society, and recently published his new book, falsehoods fly, why misinformation spreads and how to stop it. Having said that, here's my conversation with Professor Paul Thaygaard. If I could ask some naive questions, because I find sometimes these very elementary naive questions, uh, bring out the most interesting discussions. So, uh, if it's okay, starting off with the field of cognitive science, uh, firstly, as a philosopher, why in particular were you driven towards doing research in cognitive science, and then what uh, what would you say is the reason that, especially in the past, I'd say, ten years, it, it, there's been so much interest growing uh, within the field, uh, you know, and it's becoming such a, a sort of sort of a kind of field that reaches across multiple disciplines, like AI to sociology to philosophy of mind and and whatnot. Um, So, yeah, if you could get to that, please, Professor.
1: Sure, I can give a kind of historical answer. So I did my PhD in philosophy of science and was very interested in scientific reasoning. But then I had good luck in my first year of teaching in Michigan to meet Richard Nisbet, who was a very prominent cognitive social psychologist. And through him, I began to realize that the issues I was interested in about the nature of scientific thinking Are highly psychological i didn't know much psychology working in philosophy of science but saw lots of ways of rethinking the nature of scientific discovery and scientific justification from the perspective of cognitive psychology and then it was that very first year where i started reading voraciously in cognitive psychology that i discovered artificial intelligence, because there was a lot of interplay between the two fields where people in artificial intelligence were trying to build computer models of how people think. And I realized this was not only a set of new ideas, it was a whole new methodology. Because instead of abstractly understanding how scientists think, that is how they discover new ideas or how they justify their theories, it occurred to me that Uh, well, it occurred to many people in AI before, is I could build computer models of this. Uh, So I did a master's degree in computer science to acquire all the skills to be able to do that. So ever since then, and this is really the late 70s, I've been triangulating among these three fields, philosophy of science and cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence. Later, really in the 90s, neuroscience became a big part of it because by that time, neuroscience was becoming much more integral to psychology. People started thinking not just about thought processes, but how the brain does all these things. So after that, starting by the 90s, I was bringing neuroscience into it as well. So it's a really exciting time to be trying to figure out how the mind works because there's all these four fields and they're all suggesting different kinds of ideas but they're also suggesting different kinds of methods that you can use to figure out how we do the most advanced kinds of human thinking.: So
0: would you say that uh, cognitive science has taken up the role of something like philosophy of mind? For instance, uh, someone like Immanuel Kant, would he, if he were alive today, would he be a cognitive scientist like yourself?
1: Well, people still find ideas in him that are relevant to cognitive science, but of course, he never thought of what he was doing as anything like science at all. So there's this long divide in philosophy. It really goes back to Plato and Aristotle. I mean, Plato thought that philosophy was really a kind of pure reasoning discipline. So you could do thought experiments and try to grasp the forms, but it was really a pure enterprise. Aristotle was very different. Aristotle's ideas are just full of the science of his day. He was very interested in biology and primitive ideas about psychology and physics that are around. So for Aristotle, philosophy and science were closely tied together. Whereas for Plato... philosophy was a standalone, pure reason kind of enterprise. And for most of the 20th century, philosophy worked that way. It worked in the more Plato mode than the Aristotle mode. But I think it's really terrific that in the last few decades, really since the 1970s, it began, Philosophy of mind, it hasn't been superseded by cognitive science because there's lots of really important philosophical questions that aren't simply replaceable by science, but good philosophy of science, good philosophy of mind, and I think good philosophy in general now Is very tied in with what we're learning about the mind and biology and artificial intelligence. So, philosophy, right now, at least when it's done well and productively, has got this large scientific component. But that doesn't mean that philosophy has been replaced. Philosophy, I still think, is an extremely valuable enterprise, whether you're interested in mind or society or any of these other really important issues.
0: I certainly agree. Uh, Again, another naive question, Professor Arm. what would you say right now in the current, let's say, intellectual milieu uh, amongst scientists, who are, you know have heavily in the technical work, you know, the work of science? What what, what would you say is an assumption they've made uh, in their let's say epistemology that you think is is wrong or flawed?
1: I think scientific epistemology is actually very sophisticated. I mean, most of the scientists are combining all the best things that are part of science. That includes observations, experiments, instruments, uh, controlled experiments. And so they're doing a really quite good job. So I don't think there's any kind of fundamental flaw of course, there are different kinds, and some areas become more abstract and more speculative, and so that I don't have a lot of respect for. For example, I don't believe in the multiverse or, or other strange kinds of, of speculations, but physics, chemistry, biology, and all the other sciences, are, I think, are doing quite a remarkable job in expanding our knowledge of the world. So I don't see any central flaw in science as a whole. I mean, there's lots of problems in in biology and uh, chem and medicine and psychology. There's been a replication crisis where it seems that a lot of the experiments don't replicate. But that's something that people are working on, and they're working on using the tools that are a standard standard part of the scientist toolkit.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, the The reason I asked that question was uh, because I'm sure you've seen Professor uh, kind of like the, I don't even want to call them really scientists per se, even though they, they in their own way out, but like science popularizes like Neil deGrasse Tyson or, or, or whoever they, they say, they make such blatant comments. Like, you know, there's no, no use for philosophy, you know, science would yeah. know, replace, science says everything. It's kind of like, it's the ultimate epistemology that we need. And, and I, it's like, it, my immediate response is that you're missing out on something, but I can't really put it on yeah. words. What is it that philosophy provides that the field of science can't? And I'm just wondering what your uh, thoughts on such a comment would be.
1: <laughs> well, th- there's there's a comment that uh, was made about economics uh, by, uh, I think, by Keynes, that people who... Uh, uh, are dismissive of economics are usually in the throes of some dead economist, and I've turned that into philosophy as well. So people who dismiss philosophy are usually in the throes of some bad philosophy, and I don't know about Tyson. I haven't heard him see, make that comment, but someone who said very very similar was Stephen Hawking, as eminent book. a scientist said, there is. Yeah, he said philosophy is dead, but then he proceeds to do a lot of philosophy. It's really interesting. I mean, all his arguments of philosophy are philosophical arguments, and they're they're actually very naive. He doesn't realize that he's simply he's simply parroting Kant <laughs> because he doesn't realize what the array of philosophical views are. So, given that, I think that philosophy is very closely tied to science. You might ask, well, what does it have to bring? And I answered this in an article I wrote quite a while ago called uh, "Why Cognitive Science Needs Philosophy and Vice Versa." Um, so that really answers it. And I think there are two things that philosophy brings to the picture that aren't part of science. One is generality. So a a physicist or a biologist are usually concerned with some fairly narrow concerns about particular planets or particular organisms or so on. What philosophy's got though is generality. It asks these really important general questions. For example, what kinds of things exist? Uh, And I think that's really legitimate. So anytime people are doing cutting edge science, it's not not ordinary science, which you don't need philosophy or much, but if they're doing cutting edge science, they're running into these very general questions about the nature of reality and the nature of knowledge. And so whether they want to or not, they're bumping into philosophical questions. And it can really be good for them to know what kinds of answers have been given. Otherwise, they just end up parroting some dead philosopher whose views they don't even know, as Hawking as H- did with Kant. Um, so that's one thing. But the other, of course, is normativity. Normative is about what should happen, not just what is. So scientists, by and large, do what they should do. They study how things are. They're not mo- concerned most of the time with how things ought to be but you always bump into normative questions if you're dealing with climate change if you're dealing with um, all, all these social questions you can't help but think about not just how things are but how they ought to be well how things ought to be these normative questions these have been the province of philosophy since plato and aristotle and even before and so there you want to have some sense of what kinds of answers are available what's right or wrong about different ways of attacking these normative questions so i think Good scientists who are doing cutting-edge stuff bump into these general questions and these normative questions, and for that, philosophy has really a lot to offer, as long as it's not the pure reason kind of philosophy, but it's philosophy that's thoroughly engaged with the science of the day. So that's why I think philosophy is actually really valuable, even though I'm a big fan of scientific or naturalistic philosophy.
0: Indeed, indeed. I mean, obviously, scientists were initially, during from, from Newton's time, they were called natural philosophers right um so uh, professor uh, i know that you you touched on this especially in uh, chapter 9 of your book uh, falsehoods falsehood falsehoods of life, sorry um what would you say what would you say are some good models of thinking to be a critical thinker uh, especially given that you've written a book on misinformation uh and and on the domain of philosophy and the likes uh just in general uh i don't want to uh, Put it in in, in in the sense of like cheap advice, because that's not really, I know that that's not, that's not what philosophers do. But uh, yeah, just in general, critical thinking, you know, these things we discuss, what are, what are good modes of thinking?
1: Well, we can look to some good models and some bad models. It's often useful to have both. Uh, so one of my favorite scientists of all time, still one of the greats, is Charles Darwin. And what did he do? He did vast amounts of observation. He's famous for the theory of evolution by natural selection. But he wasn't a theorist, mostly. He just he stumbled upon that theory and wrote a fabulous book on the origin of species that defends it. But he, he did vast amounts of observation. So that's really important, but he also did experiments, and he also uh, thought through what he was doing very, very critically. So when he developed the theory on the origin of species, he didn't just sort of run out and say it, here, believe me, because I'm Charles Darwin, because he wasn't famous yet. What he did was amass huge amounts of evidence. He took 20 years to put the whole theory together until he had this really strong case that my theory of evolution should be believed by everyone because it explains the evidence way better than the alternative theory, which at that time was divine creation. So I don't think there's a a better model of great scientific work and reasoning than Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. What do we have in the other extreme? Well, I can just name two of the worst reasoners that I know of. Uh, One is Deepak Chopra, who has uh, got all these mystical ideas about how you can make your life better by mumbling mumbo-jumbo about quantum Quantum theory, theory, which he doesn't understand. Um, So that's that's a bad example. And another example that's much more dangerous is, of course, Donald Trump, because he has no understanding of science. He has no understanding of observation or experiment or how you justify a theory. For him, it's all what psychologists call motivated reasoning. He just says whatever suits his goals. And his goals are not good. They're his own personal aggrandizement. They're Making a, a country, his country, the United States, one that will be isolated from other countries and therefore uh, encourage the spread of evil in the world. Uh, so that's a case where instead of using good kinds of thinking, the like way Darwin did—observation, experiment, good theorizing—you've got pure wishful thinking that just supports his own needs and the and the and the desires of other rich people like him. So that's, those are, I think, probably the two biggest screams. But of course, to make th- these this distinction work, which is really a distinction between real information and misinformation, you have to have reality. <laughs> that is, you have to have the idea that there is a distinction between what's true and what's false. Trump doesn't know that distinction. People like Rudy Giuliani say things like, truth is not truth. Uh, and then the biggest irony, of course, is that Trump calls his own uh, substitute for Twitter, uh, uh, true social. Well, there's nothing in truth there at all. It's basically just his own whims and his own greed and what is going to make him most powerful. So that kind of of misinformation, which is disinformation because it's intentional, is actually producing great evil in the world. We've got so many problems in the world that I talk about in my book and falsehoods fly problems like the pandemic, problems like climate change, problems like rampant inequality, problems about ridiculous conspiracy theories, but all of you can't talk seriously about those things unless you can make a distinction between real information, which consists of truths, and misinformation, which consists of falsehoods. So you have to have a distinction between true and false. And so that requires you to have some account of what reality is. That, of course, is philosophy. That's metaphysics. But it's metaphysics that can draw heavily on all of the sciences as well as philosophical deliberation.
0: Indeed, indeed. So are you are you claiming that in some sense, in some sense, to be a good thinker or let's say a critical uh, a critical thinker, uh, one has to start from a presupposition that there is some kind of ontic substantial reality? Because if not, we go into like postmodern mumbo jumbo. You know, everything is yeah. relative. Uh, in fact, sorry, to just to interrupt you there. But um, sure. there's a philosopher Slavoj Zizek who I really enjoy reading. He says that Donald Trump is the quintessential postmodern precedent, because for him, everything is from his point of view.
1: Well, Žižek is pretty postmodern himself, and I'm not that as big a fan as you are. I've tried to read some of his work on on ideology, and he, he obviously knows the historical sources, but he's part of a of a, a European uh, tradition of philosophy that does a lot of blather. I mean, he basically just sort of the words get spinned out, and there's no way of evaluating whether any of it's it's true or not. So the 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 postmodernist uh, philosophical tradition is not one that I'm a big big fan of.
0: No, that's fair, because I, I, I want to ask you more about these kind of speculative questions later on, uh, but that's probably after we discuss a bit of your technical work. But given, Professor, that we're currently uh, discussing, you know, misinformation, let's let's get to your book, Falsehoods, Falsehoods Fly. I keep uh, messing up the pronunciation on that. Um. So uh, what would you say? It's quite interesting that you wrote a book on misinformation, because I feel like this seems something that would at least from my you know limited understanding, would be covered in more of a humanities field, like sociology or political science. Uh, but as a cognitive science researcher, do you think uh, cognitive science has anything different to provide for the field of misinformation as, say, in contrast to a field like uh, yeah political science or sociology?
1: Well, I don't like a lot of these divisions. I think they're kind of artificial. So... My book has got a lot of uh, philosophy in it, but it's also got a lot of psychology in it. Large numbers of psychologists over the last few years have gotten really interested in the problem of misinformation because it's so serious. And so you can ask questions, why are people so prone to believe nonsense? Uh, And for that, there's really lots of good psychological reasons. So earlier I mentioned Donald Trump as a purveyor of of motivated reasoning, a psychological idea that people tend to believe things, not because they have any reason to believe it's true, but because it fits with their goals. Uh, This idea was actually developed by my late wife, Ziva Kunda, in some brilliant experiments a couple of decades ago. And that idea has really been locked into lots of uh, social psychology as well, and it's spread into other fields. So we need psychology to understand why people are so easily taken in by misinformation. Why isn't everybody naturally a critical thinker? Um, So we need psychology. We also need philosophy because obviously this is highly normative. We're, We're dealing with these metaphysical questions about reality, but we're also dealing with about questions, not just how do people think, but how should they think? And I'd like to see people do much more careful, critical thinking rather than the sort of uh, visual thinking that Deepak Chopra and and Donald Trump are prone to. So we need psychology and philosophy, but we also need lots of other fields as well. If you're gonna be dealing with misinformation about the pandemics um, or or climate change, well, you need the science, you need the uh, meteorology for climate change, you need the biology and medicine. And so really all these areas have to be tied in together. One of my chapters is about inequality, and that really gets into lots of questions for, taken from economics and politics as well. So I don't like the view of academia that divides it into these neat fields. I think these intellectually, that the issues are all interconnected. There's just a kind of bureaucratic accident that people get divided into these fields, and they have to suppose that I am this or that ever since I started Moving into cognitive science, I've been looking for interdisciplinary connections that can embrace all of the fields that you mentioned. You simply have to figure out what kind of evidence is relevant to the issues you want to address. And when you do that, well, you can actually get out some pretty interesting answers. So I don't think we should figure out, worry too much about, well, is that philosophy, is that psychology? The important thing is, is it true and is it just? That is, does it actually tend to make for advancement of people's lives. And I think that cognitive science and philosophy and these other fields working together can try to address the horrendous problem of misinformation because it's causing so much difficulty in the world today. I mean, there's still people uh, dying of of Covid because they haven't been vaccinated. I mean, it's shocking to think that's going on. There's recently in the us there were two thousand deaths a week in the US. And the US is a rich country with a very advanced medical system. But people are still dying because they don't believe that the vaccinations work when there's so much evidence that they do. And in these other areas, I guess I think the most horrendous, of course, is climate change. We've got vast amounts of evidence now that the climate change problem is really serious, that within a decade or two or three, it's hard to know exact, we're going to be having all sorts of collapses taking place in the world's climate system, things like the motions of the Atlantic Ocean or uh, uh, the glaciers. I mean, there's there's all sorts of collapses that are imminent that are going to cause huge amounts of harm to human beings. And yet we're being taken in by the misinformation that's spread by politicians and by oil companies. And that's enabling people to say, oh, no, don't worry, it's going to be taken care of. But that's just that's misinformation. And it's not just that it's false, it's false and it's evil. And the evil means it's causing great harm for human beings. So you have to get into these normative questions at the same time as you tie them in with all the empirical questions about what's happening with pandemics, what's happening with climate change, and so on.
0: Yeah, you introduced a concept called pre-information. Could you could you explain what that is, please?
1: Yeah. So this is part of the attempt to try to figure out. What can you do to stop uh, to stop uh, misinformation from spreading? And I talk about a number of ways where you can try to do it preventively. So the analogy here is medicine. I think there's a strong analogy between uh, misinformation problems and disease problems. The, the analogy goes like this. So in medicine, uh, people are healthy when their bodies are working well, everything's performing as it should, all the mechanisms are working. But when the mechanisms break down, you get disease and people get very unhealthy. But what do you try to do? Well, then you have different kinds of cures. And so we need ways of coming in and curing the diseases. But doctors all know that one of the best things you can do is preventive medicine. That is, don't get people sick in the first place. So make sure people are exercising, that they're getting good diets they're eating lots of sleep and they won't get sick. So that's called preventive medicine. Medicine. So I, I came up with this idea of pre-information by analogy to that. It's like it's like uh, preventive medicine. It's like preventive thinking. So pre-information is doing all you can to make sure that the misinformation doesn't get in place uh, in, in the, doesn't get in established in the first place. And psychologists have done some really brilliant work on this. They do it uh, under a name of of, of pre-bunking. Do they call it? So debunking is when something is wrong and then you fix it. But it's even better if you can pre-bunk, which is you can warn people, watch out, garbage is coming, bad ideas are coming. Uh, Basically, every... Every speech by Donald Trump should have this as a kind of warning. He's going to tell you lies. He's going to play on your emotions. He's going to try to make you as prone to motivated reasoning as he is. And he's going to lie to you. And he's going to get you to believe things that are evil. Now, that's kind of crude. But there are subtle ways of doing it that uh, the psychologists, quite a few of them, could be quite quite effective. So this is all part of what I call pre-information, where you try to pre-bunk and you get people prepared. Now, part of it actually is what's um, long been a part of philosophy, which is teaching critical thinking. So how can you get people to understand, for example, the difference between real information and just making things up? So my kind of, of information, I distinguish different ways of acquiring knowledge. So acquisition can mean doing it right, the way Darwin did, which is do lots of observations and experiments and and, and try to look at the world. But Huge amounts of misinformation comes about just through the cheaper and cruder strategy of just making stuff up. Donald Trump doesn't have to go do any studies to come up with any ideas; he just makes stuff up. And lots of people do that who are critical of vaccines, who are uh, pushing conspiracy theories, all these other ideas. And so, making stuff up is really different from observing and experimenting and using instruments and evaluating your theories based on these kinds of empirical techniques. So we need everyone to understand, and and a lot of people just don't, the difference between these good ways of acquiring information and the really bad ways that come from listening to Donald Trump or Deepak Chopra or most of the people on TikTok or uh, lots of other kinds of social media where people are just making stuff up all the time because it attracts attention. One of the biggest problems in the spread of misinformation over the last two decades is social media. Social media have sometimes been quite valuable, but they have very few restrictions. How do ideas spread on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter now called X? They don't spread because they've been evaluated as being good. They spread because they're exciting, because they're novel. They basically play into people's emotions and people go, wow, that's interesting. I'm gonna tell all my friends instead of saying, wait a minute, where did that idea come from? What's the evidence behind it? Who's supporting it? What are their motivations? What are they trying to do in convincing me of this? So people don't ask the right kinds of questions and so they just go, hey, this is exciting and repost. And that's one of the biggest problems, as I said, over the last couple of decades, is that social media can spread so many bad ideas so rapidly across the whole world, really, and sometimes just a matter of of, uh, minutes.
0: Okay, yeah, and I completely agree, Although, Professor. If I could now probably try to devil's advocate, <clears throat> so I'll put on the uh, the hat of uh, let's say some kind of right wing conspiracy theorist t- types, and the, the because the way that let's say counter your your argument would be, uh, oh, you're talking about pre information, isn't that like some kind of uh, you know brainwashing educational Soviet style? camp where you kind of you know you know i don't know implement propaganda your your propaganda into into our lives and i don't know uh the great replacement theory whatever whatever all these uh, different different ways that people think that the government or the establishment or the elite is out to get you right so how would you feel well, my first question would be more of a practical one this kind of uh, pre-information. This this way of thinking. How would you implement it practically? Was it, what kind of institutions would you use for that? And secondly, if someone and I don't, and I would say a lot of people, given that Donald Trump is probably going to win the election in the United States, unfortunately, uh, do think that the elite or the deep state is kind of out to get you. How would you respond to a person like that? Uh, you know, if they if they challenge you on this idea of pre-information.
1: Well, I wouldn't challenge them by just saying, here's what you should believe and you should believe it because I say that. That's exactly the opposite of what I want to say. And so it's not its not at all like what they're trying to do. Instead, I'd ask them basic questions. What is the evidence? What observations have been made that support this? What kinds of experiments support the claims that you're making about medical treatments? So you can ask for anyone. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm saying we know from hundreds and hundreds of years of science that these techniques work really well, keeping people from being duped. That is, using observation and checking our facts against reality. So it's not that you just try to counter one dogma with another dogma. Instead, you point out to people that if you want to have good beliefs, these are ways that work really quite well. Uh, And and of course, there are ways in which they're exercised. It's not just science that does this, but good journalism does as well. There are some journalistic sources that are much better than others. Some just make things up because they want to support different people. Fox News in the United States is a great example of that. They just say whatever they want in order to support their political ends and the political ends of people like Donald Trump. Actually, they're not as keen on him now as they used to be, but probably they'll come around now that he's going to be the Republican candidate. Yeah. Uh, so there, they don't have any sense of checking the facts, of doing observations, getting good evidence. They don't understand all that. It's just, here's what we're saying because it makes us feel good. I mean, it's it, it suits our ends. Um, so, the conspiracy case is really interesting because there are real conspiracies. I talk about them in my chapter on conspiracy. So, after all, I've, I used a, an, an ancient one, which is the uh, conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar. I mean, there really was a conspiracy there. A bunch of people got together and assassinated him. Much more recently, uh, there were conspiracies involved in organizing the insurrection in the United States, the January 6th insurrection. They've all, people have been convicted. Large numbers of the gangs that were involved in doing this, the militias, have been convicted. So they had conspiracies. And they're good ways of determining... When there's a conspiracy, you can observe what people are saying to each other. You can figure out what their motives are, what the groups were, what the communications were. You can check to see what emails they sent to each other. That doesn't work for Caesar, but it worked really well for the poor, for, for, for the American ones. Uh, so you've got ways of checking to see whether there really was such a conspiracy. But the conspiracy theories that inhabit the, the right wing are just made up somebody said, oh, all these Democrats are pedophiles. Was there any evidence of that? Well, no. Uh, Was there, uh, they say, oh, it's all going on. Pedophiles are operating in the basement of this pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C." Well, this restaurant didn't even have a basement. So if you check any facts, you can see that there's just no basis for, for that sort of thing. So at the very bottom of all this, there needs to be a distinction between believing things on evidence and believing things because somebody you like just made them up. How do we get that through to people? Well, there's lots of ways it can happen. It can be individual education. It should be taught in schools. And and a lot of places it is. For example, in Finland, they have a really good critical thinking program in the high schools. Uh, In universities, I used to teach critical thinking at the university level. uh, So that can be very useful. But it needs to be much more pervasive. Some people already understand this. I mean, there are good newspapers that... Uh, that believe in fact-checking. They don't say something unless they've got multiple sources. They don't just make stuff up. Uh, so you got to figure out which are the news sources that you can trust. I've got a whole list of them that they're not perfect, but they're, they're really pretty good, uh, newspapers and television uh, um, networks that I think are are actually quite good, and be able to contrast them with places like Fox News that are just – making stuff up as well as the politicians do. So everyone needs that kind of education to figure out how this works. I never considered falsehoods fly as a a textbook in critical thinking. That's a different kind of uh, thing already. But I give a theoretical basis for doing that based on understanding what's the difference between acquiring real information and acquiring misinformation using things like making stuff up and motivated reasoning.
0: Yeah, although I would add that chapter nine again—a chapter I really enjoyed reading. There is, there are some you discuss different types of realism, and there is some way where you do uh, expound clear, coherent thinking, especially in our in our times of uh, rampant disinformation. Um, yeah. Well, I, I kind of want to. Here's here's where uh, now, if you don't mind, we get a bit of a few, few speculative questions because. This is where I still, because I come, I understand you're more of an analytical philosopher. I still very much come from more from the continental philosophy side, reading people like Jacek and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And like their whole idea is, Professor, that in some sense, we all live, it's a very postmodern kind of argument. You're right in that in that sense. that In some sense, we all live in kind of a symbolic space in the sense that the way the world makes meaning to us, the, the, the way that we meaningfully understand the world is we all have these, symbolic reality we 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 take for granted things like well democracy i mean for me democracy is just it's it's almost like innate to who i am who i am as a person i believe in democracy but i'm sure there are people uh, especially now with the rise of fascism who would probably argue that no democracy is, it's it's not a good idea it, it, it leads to debauchery or whatever you know putin might say um, so my question is in this in this way of like critical thinking and and kind of the 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 thinking modes you you put forward how can at, at a very fundamental level how can how can we we navigate in a space where it seems like in some sense the postmodernists were right and what i mean by that is that there are people literally moving being siloed into their own Kind of symbolic realities. It's as if it's as if we are all in different multiverses, and, and there's there's no uh, fundamental basis for truth per se. So from you know all your work, all the work you've done, just if you could speculate on how do you think we can mediate through these different worldviews, uh, be it fascism or democracy, or utilitarianism or communism. Uh, yeah, sorry, I know that's a bit of a long-winded question, but. Yeah. I hope that
1: makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think democracy is a good topic to try to address the difference between postmodernism and the more kind of coherent realism that I advocate. Yes. So uh, you, you, I mean, democracy is not innate. Obviously, it's been somewhat rare in the history of humans. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the kind of democracy that originated in ancient Greece wasn't terribly democratic. There were a third of the population were slaves, and they obviously weren't part of any kind of democracy. So it was a very uh, narrowly um, narrow kind of democracy. But of course, the idea got much more broad after the in the 18th century when various philosophical ideas start to spread and there were various movements that led to the establishment of the kinds of democracies we have today, where everyone has a right to vote, and in principle, uh, everybody is equal, not just the men and not just the white people, but everybody, all human beings. I think that's one of the most brilliant things that humanity ever did: is to realize that a country, a society, should be controlled by the will of the people and all the people, irrespective of what their, uh, of what their race or their sex or their uh, sexual preferences. These are all people, and they should all have ways of having their voice heard. Now, a postmodernist could perhaps say, well, that's just one way of thinking about reality. And we know that reality is socially constructed. And so it's just a matter of who's in power. That would be a sort of Foucaultian way of thinking of it. Um, But I think that's just wrong. I think we've got really good evidence that democracy is the best way to go. Look at the world right now. You can compare countries. I did this as an exercise in uh, uh, one of my earlier books, The Brain and the Meaning of Life. And I repeated the exercise actually in a 2019 book called Natural Philosophy. Can we say that democratic societies are better? Not just because some people think it's so and not just because it's socially constructed or because it's part of the zeitgeist. Let's look at the societies. Let's look at countries like Australia, and Canada and the United States and the European countries, uh, the, and the Western European countries. And they're way better places than lots of other places in the world because people have the kind of equality and the freedom and the ability to choose their leaders. Uh, and so, if you look on any objective measure, it could be how long do people live? How happy are they? These democratic societies that have. Uh, element of believing that equality should operate and you should look after the people who are the worse off as well as just the rich. These are by far the best societies in the world by all sorts of objective measures, including lifespan, amount of health, reported happiness. They're just way better. Uh, So Canada and Australia, where we are, are both good countries and we're not as rich as uh, the United States, for example, but basically people live longer and they're happier. And Life is sometimes hard, but overall, for most people, it's way better than what you find in fascist dictatorships like uh, current Russia. Uh, So there, people are poor, they're oppressed, uh, they they don't live long lives, they're unhappy. And so it's really easy on objective measures to say that democracy is the best form of government that humans have managed to come up with not perfect. I mean, sometimes that you get mistakes such as perhaps electing Donald Trump again, but nevertheless, it's just way better than than fascist dictatorships um, at at the other extreme. Uh, So I think there are absolutely good reasons, scientific reasons, in fact, although of course they're tied in with normative questions to argue that democracy isn't just one kind of government over others. It's the one that's best for meeting the needs of people. So the crucial idea here is needs. Um, So the uh, fundamental philosophical question is what's the basis of right and wrong? And I've argued in a number of books that the basic idea here is needs. Uh, That is, these are objective. It's not just wants. You can have all sorts of different wants. You've got, uh, I just read that in the United States, there are almost a thousand billionaires. And they certainly have their wants. They want yachts. They want a 350 foot yacht because they have to have a yacht that's at least as big as the billionaire next door. Well, that's a want, that's not a need. Nobody needs a 350 foot. But what do people need? Well, this is an objective question. Biologically, it's clearly objective. We need air, we need water, we need food, uh, we need shelter when it's cold, we need health care. These are biological needs for which we have lots of evidence postmodernism that tried to say, well, that's just one way of talking. No, it's not a way of talking. This is the way that our bodies work. That's on the biological side. What about in the psychological side? Well, there, there's lots of evidence too. I, I've of, uh advocate an idea that was developed by a couple of clinical psychologists DC and Ryan that the three fundamental psychological needs are relatedness which is connected with other people, autonomy, which is freedom, which also ties in obviously with democracy and uh, and competence that is the ability to do things to have achievements. And they have over decades accumulated loads of evidence that these three needs are fundamental to people, that if you get them to be satisfied, I'll repeat them again, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, then people have good lives. And you can easily make an argument that democracy, as in the countries that I mentioned before, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, East, Western Europe, United States, do a fairly good job of looking after people's both biological needs, but also to some extent their psychological needs, enabling them to have good relationships with other people, a fair degree of freedom and ability to do something with their lives that makes them feel they've got accomplishments and achievements. That's the competence part. So I think we don't have to make these up. You can look and see of what kinds of psychological studies have been done, what kinds of medical studies have been done. And so we can argue objectively, that these are human needs and so any philosophical view including postmodernism and other kinds of any realism that tries to dismiss this are not acting in the interests of people sometimes they can be acting in the interests of bad people like the the billionaires or or just because they've got some intellectual games that they want to play but that's not just wrong it's 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 bad it's bad for humanity so i think philosophy has a strong ethical obligation as well as intellectual obligation to advocate that we satisfy the needs of others and we look for kinds of governments such as socially responsible democracies that do in fact meet these needs. If we've got that, then we've got a wonderful package. Then we can really say that we're getting philosophy right, but we're also getting the science right and we're getting the world right because there is a world to be gotten right rather than not just something to make a bunch of stories about.
0: Indeed, indeed. And yeah, I I gotta say, Professor, like, even though I read a lot of the postmodern, like Foucault and Derrida, because I find they have interesting uh, insights, I still very much think the Enlightenment was the best thing that happened to humanity, and I think we should defend it, because I find kind of the more of the tradition you come from does come from some kind of Enlightenment thinking that we can reason, we can... We can as you as you do uh compare and empirically look at the world. I, I completely agree with that. Um although just, just got me thinking I wasn't gonna ask you this uh, it wasn't even in the, in the in the notes but when you were talking about human needs um one of your compatriots john mavakey uh, professor john mavake are you familiar with his work no in- interesting so he he uh he I think also works from I forget which university but he's Canadian um, he's he talks about the need for, for meaning. And he says that we, we're currently living in a meaning crisis. Uh, and then he points at multiple things, for instance, like the rise of, uh, you know, rise of fascism, for instance, across the world. And then there's this term, uh, I believe, so- social psychologists call deaths by despair, people literally dying from sadness or meaninglessness or despair. Uh, and his whole argument is yes, we have these needs that you identified, but there's also, we have this inherent need for meaning. Not meaning in like an abstract metaphysical sense, but rather he calls it meaning in life. And you know, people like Viktor Frankl wrote the book Mantis for Meaning. So I'm just curious, uh, well, my, my I'll, I'll ask the question in like a, a bipartite manner. The first question would be, do you agree with him? Do you think that meaning is like a innate, innate inherent thing we humans need? And secondly, do you think there's a depth of meaning in modernity?
1: Yes, because people have looked for meaning in all the wrong places. Where could you look for meaning? You can look for it in religion. Historically, uh, at least for tens of thousands of years, people have found meaning in religion. I guess I've, I was brought up Catholic, and I remember being told from the catechism, uh, why did God make me to know, love and serve him in this world? So meaning comes from being part of religion. Well, the Enlightenment quite rightly abandoned that view. It has to come elsewhere. It has to come from science and from having a just society. So those were the two big advancements of the Enlightenment: science and justice. Uh, so, but the question is, can we get meaning out of science and and uh, and ethics? Well, I think we can. We can't get it from religion because religion is basically false. We can't get it from mysticism about the cosmos i just read a book who claims that the universe has a purpose and so we can get purpose from the whole universe i don't think the universe has a purpose but people have purposes people have lots of purposes and i just told you what i think are the most important not because i made them up it's because dc and ryan have spent decades documenting that these needs operate across Different societies. It's not just the uh, America where they started off, but you can find them operating in different ways in different societies. So I think where meaning comes from is from the satisfaction of needs, from the from the pursuit of needs. Not always. If you consider something like achievement or competence, it's not always that we succeed, but at least we're trying. We're trying to do something. So I try to write books, and sometimes they get read, and sometimes, a lot of times, they don't. But the meaning comes from the attempting to do something that's an accomplishment. But there's lots of other sources of meaning for almost every human being. It comes from the relationships we have with our families and with our friends and with the people we work with. And that's that's meaning. It gets devalued if you have a false ideology that's ultra individualistic. If you think that all that matters is me, myself alone, well, then you're going to have trouble with meaning because you're not going to have the kinds of valuable relationships with friends and family and and colleagues that really do provide a major part of the value of satisfying human needs. Uh, or if you're under completely under the control of a fascist dictatorship, you don't have autonomy or freedom, and so you're missing out on that. So I completely agree that humans need meaning, but it's nothing mystical. It doesn't come from religion. It doesn't come from the cosmos. It doesn't come from some... Mysteria, it comes from meeting human needs. And so if you do that for yourself and of course for other people, because you care about other people, because you're generally empathic and caring, well, then you can have an extremely meaningful life. What's happened, especially in in Western society, is the emphasis on being totally an individual has made it hard to see how you could do that. But if you look at what we've learned from psychology and philosophy and sociology and political science and in this case, comparative politics, looking at different societies, how they do things, we can see that some, science, some societies can be way better than others. And it does involve helping people find meaning. But the, the but the idea that meaning is completely lost is based on a lot of false views, not just religious views, but also economic views. You use the expression deaths of despair. That actually came from economics, uh, because it came from noticing that there are parts of the United States where there's a huge number of deaths from problems like opioids, problems like alcohol, suicide. And part of that is tied in with economic conditions because people have lost jobs. And so that's partly a, a question of the way the society is structured, because historically people have gotten a lot of the meaning in their lives from, from their work. That's part, it's not all that there is to competence or achievement, but it's part of it. People can also have hobbies and things like that. But if if you if you're if you've lost your job because the factory shut down, then you tend to get more of these deaths of despair. So it was actually an economic category rather than a psychological one. Well, how can we avoid despair? Well, that's really what I addressed mostly in my book on the brain and the meaning of life. And it's by paying attention to your own needs and the needs of others. So a big part, this is lots of empirical evidence for this, people's lives are meaningful if they're doing things for other people. If you're doing things for your family or because you're a a medical worker or because you're a teacher who are helping lots of people. So if you're helping other people, then you've got both relatedness and competence, which is a wonderful example. And so then you are, satisfying your own needs, satisfying their own the, and the needs of other people. And that's as meaningful as you could ever want. You don't need the cosmos to have a purpose and you don't need God to provide a purpose. If you've got these connections with other people that really provide you with meaning because they're so closely tied in with the satisfaction of needs.
0: Indeed. And I would even argue that even with religious people, I think the meaning people find in religion, it's not some kind of cosmic metaphysical meaning it's the meaning they find from going to church the community the day-to-day rituals and that's like it's a very localized meaning in that sense all right professor uh, before i i kind of want to ask you just a bit of an ancillary point here one thing i, I noticed when uh, before i get to the technical questions was um you are an extremely productive writer uh, you've written so many books published so many papers in your career um and on the note of meaning and and these things about i guess more like personal questions just how how generally what's your process of writing how do you how do you manage to be such a productive writer
1: and when i was in grad school i heard about a french poet who said that i only write when i get inspired and I make sure I get inspired every morning at 9 (laughs) a.m. So I thought, thought, well, that's a good idea. It's a grad school, I started working at 9 a.m. And of course, as I've gotten older, I've become more and more of a morning person. So now I usually try to get inspired at 7 a.m. So a lot of it is just setting aside a time that is uh, uh, intended for writing. So I do a blog post for Psychology Today, and there's a couple of blogs there that blog posts that really answer your question. I did one on how to be a productive writer. And there I give eight pieces of advice. So that's more of what you would want. I also did another one that was kind of fun on habits of highly successful people that looks at other kinds of more descriptive ways of what people do. So uh, I guess one reason I've read a lot is, first of all, I like it. (laughs) For some people, writing is hard or it's, it's something they like to have done, but they don't actually do like I like doing it. I think it's really fun to tackle a hard problem and gradually see an answer come to shape on the page. So I, I just really enjoy it. But it's also a question of being fairly self-disciplined about having my writing time as sacred, but also being very organized about it. Now that I've written so many books, I've got whole sets of schemas that really run through. I'm right now, we're writing a book on consciousness. And I'm on the third draft. Well, I know exactly what to do in the third draft, because I've got checklists that I've carried over for my other books. And so it's not very much fun doing the third draft. But the first draft was really fun. And the second draft was a lot of fun. Third draft, I'm just basically crossing the, the T's and dotting the I's and making sure the references are okay. That's not much fun, but it has to be done. And so you have to have these, these good procedures as well. But a lot of it it actually goes back to uh, to Confucius. The first analect in his book, The Analects, is something like this. Um, to learn and at due times to repeat what what one has learned. Is not that a, not above all a pleasure? And so that's why writing or even talking like this is really a pleasure because you like to figure out hard things and then pass them on to other people. And so that's why uh, I'm having such a good time Writing, even though I've been retired for quite a long time.
0: Excellent, excellent. I I shall leave the, uh, in fact, all the blog posts that you mentioned. I'll leave them in the description down below. I think I just found the one on uh, writing too. Uh, But no, that's great advice. So, uh, because I've been trying to utilize a bit of that. It's I kind of had this like romantic notion, you know, when inspiration strikes, I write. That's that's nonsense. You gotta have discipline every day for same seven a.m. couple hours before I start work. So it's gotta be done.
1: Oh. And make sure you tackle problems that really interest you. I've got something I call the shower test. I've never been able to think, well, now I should th- write about X because, well, that's interesting topic. People might be interested in what I have to say. Uh, that doesn't work. You can't. I can't do it instrumentally. It's got to be stuff I find exciting. So the shower test is, what do I think about in the shower in the morning? So if I'm thinking about in the shower, then that's a good sign. Yeah, this is what I should be working on. This is this is really not only an important topic, but something I've got something to say about. And so if you've got that, then you've got the intrinsic motivation to write something that will be of interest to you and hopefully to other people as well.
0: No, no. Yeah. I really do appreciate that avuncular wisdom because uh, I think cognitive science is certainly the thing that interests me the most. I'd say psychology and cognitive science. Uh, So, and in the shower, what I'm most to think about is, is those, those two topics. So That's fantastic. Um, All right, Professor, I want to get to some of the work that you've introduced into the field. Uh, Well, at uh, let's look at the time. Yeah, we've also got about more than half an hour left. That's perfect. Um, So I want to discuss uh, explanatory coherence. Uh, You've done a lot of work on that. And I'm wondering if you could kind of give a brief introduction to what uh, explanatory coherence is to a lay audience. While at the same time, uh, why you think uh, it's, uh, what, what, are the, what are the implications in fields such as AI and psychology?
1: Oh, well, that's a big question, but it's a really interesting one. So let's go back to Darwin. So I've mentioned one of my favorite books of all time is The Origin of Species. And so what was he doing in that? Uh, Well, in my view, what he was trying to do was to give a coherent explanation of all sorts of things that he observed. So he went on this voyage around the world and he, he collected all sorts of other kinds of biological information. And it gradually seemed to him that it seemed, in fact, that the species had evolved. I mean, now everybody knows that. Kids get that probably in grade four, but it was a a very controversial idea some people had maintained it, but it went up against religious doctrines. And so he gradually started to amass more and more evidence that species had evolved, but then, from reading a crazy economist named Malthus, he suddenly got the idea of how they evolved. And that's how he came up with the idea of of, of natural selection. So now he had not only a bunch of observations and the idea that evolution probably had occurred that would explain it, but an idea of how, how evolution had occurred. That is that natural selection was the mechanism behind evolution. So what he did in that book was an incredibly beautiful argument for his view as opposed to the view that was dominant at the time, which was divine creation. So what he was trying to show is that his view was a better explanation but than divine creation because it was more coherent with the evidence. Um, so this is an account that philosophers call inference to the best explanation. You can argue that something's the best explanation because it's more coherent with the evidence, but now you have to say what coherence is. So I had these early ideas coming out of my philosophy of science background. But then in 1987, I got one of the best ideas I've ever had, which was how to turn coherence from a sort of vague philosophical idea into a precise computational one. That is, how can you compute coherence? So I've been working on neural networks in collaboration with my, uh, uh, colleague Keith Holyoke. And he came up with an idea that you could use neural networks to explain analogy. Uh, these neural networks, of course, are now absolutely central to artificial intelligence. It's, it's really taken off. That's a whole you know, a fascinating topic in itself. Um, but he figured out a way of doing that. And by that time, I'd done my master's in computer science, so I was a pretty good programmer. And so I programmed up a program to use neural networks to do analogies. Um, so that that was nice. And then I thought, what else could it apply to? And then I thought back to the problem that was part of my doctoral dissertation, which was inference to the best explanation. How do you pick up the best theory? And so then I realized that that kind of coherence can be understood using the same kind of neural network technique that Keith and I had done for, for analogy. So it was a really powerful method, both computationally, but also psychologically, because there have now since then been lots of psychological experiments that back up this idea of coherence. So I think of the mind, the brain as essentially a coherence engine. There's some people who think that it's primarily a predictive engine, but I don't think that's true. I think it's primarily a, a coherence engine. We're trying to make sense of things, whether we're making sense of the past, which is what explanations do, or making sense of the future, we're making coherent predictions, or we're trying to identify things. Is, is that a rabbit or a squirrel? Those are, are different kinds of so Everything we do can be understood as having coherence behind it. But coherence now isn't just a sort of vague metaphor that it was for philosophers. It's not just a matter of consistency. It's rather of taking a whole bunch of different things and putting them into a good package. But what's a good package? Well, here, there's a, an idea that came out of the, um, neural network world called constraint satisfaction. So we're trying to satisfy a bunch of constraints. What constraints did Darwin face? while well, he was trying to explain as much as possible about what he'd seen in the biological world. That's the positive constraints, but he also had a negative constraint. And so he had to show that he could do that better than the theory that was the the competitor at the time, which is divine creation. So that's a negative constraint. So what you're doing in all of these things, whether it's decision-making or pattern recognition, or even emotion, you're putting together different sorts of constraints to evaluate what's the most coherent view. So that's how I came to see coherence, not just as a vague philosophical idea, but as a quite precise computational one that can be used to explain the mechanisms that underlie a vast amount of human thinking. So that's why I think coherence is really a fundamental idea to psychology and cognitive science and to, and to these philosophical projects as well.
0: Yeah, excellent, excellent. I'm glad you brought up uh predictive coding or predictive processing because I'm I'll be talking to a a, a cognitive scientist next month in fact based here in Melbourne and I want to ask her about your theory of uh, uh uh explanatory coherence because I believe you do have certain critiques of uh pre- predictive processing, but also uh, in your book you are critical of uh in fact no, I think you wrote an article on this, a paper on this, uh, pardon me. Uh, you're also critical of functionalism, uh, kind of what Hillary Hil- Putnam and, and the likes put forward. So from your kind of theory of mind, what would you say are your critiques of uh, uh, one, predictive processing, and then uh, functionalism?
1: Okay, those are two different views. I don't think they have anything they're, to do with each other. They certainly are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm,
0: just, I'm just curious. I put them independently. Sure. What would be, be a critiques? Yeah.
1: Okay, let's do one at a time. Predictive processing definitely is an influential view right now, but I think it's just not right. It says that the mind is, uh, the brain is a predictive engine, as if everything is prediction. But the mind doesn't just do prediction. It does at least five other things that are just as important. It does explanation, which involves explaining the past. That's not prediction, that's the past. Prediction is about the future. Or even pattern recognition. I mentioned, uh, I see an animal in my backyard. What is it? Is that a squirrel or a rabbit? Well, that's pattern recognition. That's not necessarily a prediction. I wanna know what it is. We also want to do, and this is really important um, evaluation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is this good or bad for me? Is this a threat to me? Or is this something I can eat? How do we do evaluation? Well, in humans, that comes from emotion. The predictive processing approach has had nothing interesting to say about emotion at all, but that's absolutely fundamental to many areas of human thinking. I've got a whole theory of, of, uh, of, emotion of which coherence is part of it, but it's only but it's only part of it. So you have to have evaluation going on. Communication. We sometimes predict in order to communicate with other people, but there's lots of other things going on where we want to be able to get our ideas across to others. So that's, there's at least five things that are part of the human mind other than uh, predictive processing. So that's my first critique. Uh, my second critique is The way that people in that world think that predictive processing work doesn't correspond to how the brain works very well. They're Bayesians. They say that the brain uses probability theory in accord with Bayes' theorem to predict the next thing. Well, this is crazy computationally. Bayesian Processing is well known in artificial intelligence to be extremely inefficient. You can prove that it's computationally intractable. You can show that it causes all sorts of problems. Bayesians have to jump through all sorts of hoops to try to deal with anything larger than. I've done a little bit of Bayesian modeling because I wanted to. I wrote a couple of papers where I compared a Bayesian model of legal reasoning to my explanatory coherence one, and but the Bayesian models are crazy because you have to generate all sorts of of conditional probabilities that nobody has an idea what they are. So if you actually do Bayesian modeling seriously, you'll find first of all, you don't know any of the probabilities, you don't know any of the conditional probabilities, you don't have the computational or neural resources to actually commute the probabilities. So the way that predictive processing with with its too narrow view of how the brain works, fills it out is by making brains Bayesian when they're not. A really good contrast here is with the new generative AI models. Which are actually incredibly good at predicting. Have you used ChatGPT or or any of the others? Um, okay. They're astonishing. They're astonishing at how good they are at predicting the next word to say, and they end up producing really coherent stuff. And they get things really bad badly wrong sometimes, but often they're really good. But they don't use Bayesian. Uh, predictions. It's they've got all different kinds of algorithms that they use, uh, tension mechanism and sorts of things. So, so they realize that that, that the Bayesian approach is not going to work for them. Um, so, those are my two major criticisms of the predictive processing. The brain is a, a multifaceted, it's a coherence engine doing six things uh, uh, as well as prediction, and it's not doing it using Bayesian probability calculations. Awesome. Uh, okay. So, is that good enough for predictive processing? Well, or did you want yeah. to reply? No, I think
0: that's perfect. I want to ask you about the free energy principle, but probably we'll get to the functionalism and then maybe come back to the free energy principle. Yeah,
1: Yeah, okay. okay. So functionalism is a view in the philosophy of mind. It's actually a really bad term because functionalism is a term that operates in about six different fields with six different meanings. So we need to pin it down a bit. Let's call it computational functionalism because it, it came in the sixties, when computers started to become aware and Hilary Putnam knew about the advances in computing. I mean, computers were really primitive then. I've got a watch now that was better than all the computers, way better than anything that came along for, for decades. But, uh, but still people were starting to think that with computers and the possibility of artificial intelligence, we've got this abstract way of thinking of thinking as a kind of computation. Now, one thing that's really true or or seems to be true about computation is that it doesn't really matter what you run it on. Um, So here I'm using a a Macintosh. I don't know what kind of computer you've got. It could be a a PC or running a different kind of hardware altogether. It doesn't matter. We can all run the same software. And so the analogy that Putnam hit on was mind is software rather than hardware. You can take the same software and run it on a bunch of people of hardware. All that matters is it has the appropriate computational functions. That's where the word functionalism comes from. So if you have inputs and outputs and you have the functions in between, you wanna be able to uh, make thinking work. And so forget about the hardware, forget about the brain, for example, uh, the psychologists had been studying the brain at that point for, I guess, 60 or 70 years seriously. But he, the functionalists in the 60s said, let's forget about the brain. It's all computation. It's just like AI. Anything that runs in the mind can run on a computer. Okay. So, and actually in the 1960s and 70s, that was a pretty reasonable idea. And that's why a lot of philosophers moved, considered themselves functionalists It became the dominant view in the philosophy of mind. So I think that was a pretty good idea in the 60s and 70s because- AI had become a real field. Computers had become at least rudimentarily powerful. And so not a bad idea then. But things changed in the 80s. In the 80s, a bunch of things changed. First of all, brain scanning came along. It had been really hard to study the brain before because you had to do things like poke electrodes into brains that had been exposed. And so it was really hard to study the brain. But in the 80s, brain scans came along. First of all, uh, I forget what they were called, and then eventually fMRI. But suddenly you could actually study the brain in a much more detailed way. And then you could start to test some of the claims that have been made. So when people started doing fMRI studies, they thought, oh, we're gonna be able to show that the mind really is module, that is modular. That is different parts of the brain are doing very specific things. And so we should be able to find That this part of the brain does high-level thinking, this part of the brain does emotion, and that part of the brain does vision, and we could localize it. But once people had this new tool, they started to realize, hey, it's not like that at all. Lots of what goes on in the brain involves interactions of lots of different areas. So suddenly, the brain became much more interesting. It didn't look like just some other kind of hardware you might run thoughts on. It looked like you could study on its own. So there were these empirical findings coming out of the new tools available for studying the brain that suggested that, well, maybe the structure of the brain really does matter. Um, So that was an incredibly important empirical basis for starting to question functionalism. But there was also a really interesting theoretical basis coming out of ideas about neural networks. So the ideas of neural networks had been around really back since the 50s, but they didn't work very well. And people like Marvin Minsky had argued that no, those, these ideas about neural networks are are not going to work very well. They're just they're just they're just simply not theoretically strong enough. But in the 1980s, people greatly expanded the possibilities of what neural networks could do. They invented a new algorithm called backpropagation that does learning. A whole movement got started called connectionism. We said that knowledge isn't a matter of the words you've got or the symbols, which is what artificial intelligence had been saying. It's rather it's the connections. It's the neural connections. So suddenly people were modeling their computer models because these are being done with computerized neural networks. They were modeling on ideas about the brain, how you can have different neurons working in, pa- in parallel with simple connections with them and nevertheless doing that. So in the 1980s, suddenly uh, I, functionalism was in trouble. Not many people noticed because they weren't tracking what was happening in neuroscience and in neural network theory. But it was, a, and by the 1990s, I think it really had, had completely turned around. I think by the 1990s, functionalism was no longer plausible. You needed to take the brain seriously if you wanted to understand. And the whole field of cognitive psychology changed. It went from being completely abstract and computational to doing almost everything it did in relation relation to what happened in the brain. So cognitive psychology is now completely connected with neuroscience in the field of cognitive neuroscience. Other areas of psychology, developmental, social, also became intensely tied in with the brain. So the idea that the hardware doesn't matter, which was what was behind Putnam's functionalism, just by the 90s didn't seem plausible at all. So that's why I think functionalism is a defunct view in the philosophy of mind, even though there are people who seem to assume that it's right. Sometimes it goes under other names. So it's another name that people use, it's called uh, um, substrate independence. The idea is the substrate is the physical and, and so that doesn't matter. And there are people who use that because it suits some of their views, such as the idea that we're all living in a, st- a simulation, which I think is a really dumb view. But in order to believe that, you have to believe that uh, substrate independence is true, which is another word for functionalism, which says the hardware doesn't matter because a computer – the idea of or simulation is some computer in the future is basically simulating our thoughts now. Well, that assumes that a computer can simulate all our thoughts, which assumes functionalism or some straight uh, dependence, independence, which I, which I think is wrong. Uh, and I've actually just published a paper in philosophy of science two years ago that gives a whole bunch of arguments based on energy about why it's wrong. But there are other reasons as well for thinking that 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 functionalism or substrate independence is wrong. Excellent. So. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> no, no, that's really
0: fun, but go, go, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but please.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to summarize. So it was a great idea in the philosophy of mind that no longer should be taken very seriously, given what we know about brains and energy. And uh, so even look at... at uh, um, at at the way AI is going right now. So the generative AI models, the large language models are incredible, but they're really energy pigs. It takes vast amounts of energy to train these things and to answer questions. Our brains are astonishing. Our brains work on basically 40 watts, like a small light bulb, of <laughs> uh, very small amounts of energy, very efficient, and yet we're still smarter than any computer with all these resources. So there's a whole field called neuromorphic AI, which is trying to make computers more like the brain to get these advantages of energy and efficiency and working in real time. Uh, so I think these, these are really interesting research areas that show that functionalism just wasn't it? Is no longer a plausible view in the philosophy of mind.
0: Now that's an astute point, professor. Because I was well. Two points on that. Firstly, I always found functionalists to be good old Cartesian's, where they have the mind, the mind matter. They they think mind is independent to matter, which for me never made any sense, given we are physical embodied beings. And secondly, okay. uh, you you are one hundred percent right that. I was listening to a talk uh, by Scott Aronson, the American computer scientist, and he is now a researcher at OpenAI. And OpenAI is heavily uh, investing in uh, quantum computing and even in nuclear energy because they've understood that if they are to grow their LLMs, they need infinite amounts of energy uh, because the compute power for LLMs are so they're so high compared to like our puny little brains, uh, which is uh, <laughs> a fascinating conversation. Um, just, I, I do really want to get get to LLMs and get get some of your thoughts on that too, Professor. But just one more, one more point, just on the, on the previous conversation on predictive processing. I'm jumping everywhere here. I'm sorry. Uh, I I completely got your critiques of uh, predictive processing, which I I concur with, but. What are your views on uh, something like the free energy principle by, by Carl Friston, who, after all, is a neuroscientist? Uh, would you say it's it's a good model or framework to work work with, or do you think it has-
1: no? I think it's a bogus analogy. So, <laughs> it's so yeah. it's 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 obviously an analogy because the term comes from physics. In free energy, there's a perfectly well understood idea where energy is the capacity to do work and free energy is the energy that's available in the current context to do work. Great idea, really important. So what's the free energy principle? Well people who who are big fans of predictive processing have worked their butts off to try to figure out what it is. And Friston's a horrible writer. He writes he's with incredible obscurity. He's, he writes like a postmodernist, actually, kind of postmodernist mathematician. And that's not what mathematics is supposed to be like. Mathematics is incredibly powerful because it's clear and you can see what's going on. But but his math is unclear, and the free energy principle uh, is what I call a bogus analogy. The term comes from my book Balance. I wrote a book on balance a couple of years ago. And and it talks both about the neuroscience of balance, but also talks about the way balance has become a metaphor that pervades uh, human thought. Uh, and But different metaphors have different values. Metaphors aren't all good. Some of them are really evil. They can be used to defend slavery, for example. Uh, so your question is, I'll, what what kind of metaphor have we got here? Is it one that's good, or unclear, or or utterly bogus? Uh, well, here I think it's bogus because he's trying to carry over from physics some sense of. Profundity from free energy. But if you look what he means by that, as far as anyone's been able to figure it out, and people like Anil Seth have tried to figure out what he meant by it, you say, well, it's just another way of saying predictive processing. So trying to say that what the brain is doing is to make predictions about the future in order to figure out what's likely to happen and satisfy its goals. So that's that's not a that's a reasonable idea. It's a really little hypothesis, and I think it's one of the six things that brains do. But to elevate that into a free energy principle using a bogus physical expression for physics as i think is frankly uh illegitimate it's just not a good use of metaphor it's not a good use of analogy it's a highly misleading term that is pseudo it's pseudo profundity uh it's kind of like actually among the postmodernists you mentioned i don't think i don't think uh um uh, Foucault is, is uh, bogus. I think he's actually got a lot of insights into the way society works. But a lot of the other people in that category, uh, Derrida and uh, and often Zizek, they really just don't understand the difference between uh, obscurity and profundity. So yeah, that is, you should be able to figure out what are they saying? Is it true or is it false? And you can do that often with Foucault. Uh, you can do that with good cognitive scientists. But the idea of free energy is just so kind of obscure that it's hard to make sense of it. Now, th- and I think actually the predictive processing idea is clear enough that you can see that it's not true. Because as I said the mind does a lot of other things besides prediction, and it does it by means other than Bayesian processing. So predictive processing is an idea that's interesting but wrong, whereas free energy is an idea that's just too obscure to be even wrong.
0: I see, because as a layperson, my my confusion always with the free energy principle was I I saw what Professor Friston was getting. And in fact, I'm currently reading his book, Active Inference. <coughs> but as a meta theory as like a theory of mind that that encompasses what the mind is i always felt it lacked certain other parts
1: of what the mind is like for instance coherence explanatory coherence uh, and emotion for evaluation yes uh, and appraisal and communication with others you need all of these things <laughs> if you're going to have a full theory of mind it's really just got one tiny corner It it commits something that I've called Thales' disease. I mean, Thales was really the first philosopher and the first scientist, absolutely brilliant thinker. But he came up with a theory that was just a little too simple. His theory is everything is water. (laughs) Well, uh, that was brilliant. It's absolutely simple. But uh, even by Aristotelian standards, where you also need earth, air, and fire, it just didn't cut it. And of course, now that we know there's 118 different elements, no, it doesn't work. So what I call Thales' disease is... Coming up with a theory that looks brilliantly simple, but it's just way too simple. And that's definitely true of predictive processing as well.
0: I see, I see. Professor, could I ask, have you got any any writing, any publications on, on, online that in open source uh, where you're, you're being critical of uh, the free energy principle? Because I, I'm hoping to have uh, Professor Friston on in, in a few months, and I'd love to uh, read any work you've got and ask him about your criticisms, if... Uh,
1: yeah, it's in one of my blog posts for Psychology Today, and I can't remember the title, but it's easy I'll, to I'll find because it, it's it's the one that talks about um, uh, a Neil Sess book. Excellent. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. So it's yeah. the one on.
1: So sorry, I I, I, I yeah I've given you enough to to find it, and it, and it does mention it. these. Uh, I also do that. That's something that's not online. There's a little bit of that in also in a couple of other books I've written, including the Balance book. Uh, yeah, that also has has a bit of the critique. Excellent, of, perfect. Yeah, I so it's, it's it's in those different places.
0: Yeah, I'll leave I will leave a link down below to all, all of that. I i I'm, that's given me enough uh, breadcrumbs to go and find find the find mm-hmm. the blog posts. Um, all right, professor, I think we've got about ten minutes remaining, and just uh, just the last question, really. I I really wanted to ask you about uh, LLMs, given your work in uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, so. I'm I'm sure you're you're aware of uh, Noam Chomsky's uh, criticisms of uh, you know ChatGPT and LLMs, and you know he uh, wrote the now the infamous New York uh, New York Times article where he says it's a it's a great work of technology, but it makes no contribution to its science and to its understanding the mind. Uh, so in general, what are your views on uh, LLMs? Uh, Uh, Leaving aside all the like the I I guess the more of the contemporary jobs economy all of that, but as a as a cognitive scientist, what are your views on LLMs? uh, And do you agree with someone like Professor Chomsky's uh, critiques?
1: Yeah, I read Chomsky's critique, and it's similar to something that another uh, prominent cognitive scientist Alison Gopnik has said, because he says children do things differently because they can have explanations. I thought this idea was so interesting that I asked ChatGPT to write a poem about it. Uh, because ChatGBT and other, these LLMs write really good poetry. Uh, I mean, maybe not William Butler Yeats style poetry, but good. And so I asked her to write a poem and it did a beautiful job of reply. It clearly understood the Chomsky-Gopnik point, a claim it's making. And it said in a sort of amusing fashion, well, we just wait and see what AI can do. I actually think it's a, a wonderfully interesting question. And I've been trying, just playing around, with ChatGPT, using the most advanced one, GPT-4, as well as a couple of the other AI models to see what they can do. And I guess my current view is, I don't know. I think it's an open question. It's not obvious that Chomsky isn't right, because some of the things I've gotten GPT to do suggest a really sophisticated understanding of scientific inference. You might think, oh, it's just a predicting the next word. Well, it is predicting the next word, and- and was trained to predict the next word. But there's an interesting view of how it does that. This view comes from Jeffrey Hinton in one of the interviews he's given. And Hinton was one of the people who developed the technology that made the large language models uh, possible. He developed deep learning, which in the, in the 2012 or so, were the first big successes for neural networks. So the kind of neural networks I started working with back in the 80s were really kind of primitive in what they could do. Uh, but in, the, in around 2012, there were a bunch of advances. First of all, Hitton and his group at the University of Toronto figured out how to work with a bunch more layers. Um, and secondly, they're working with much faster computers than available in the 80s. And thirdly, huge data sources had become available. Suddenly you had uh, data sources with huge amounts of electronic text, huge amounts of visual images. And so the training data were greater. And There were these big breakthroughs starting in 2012, what what became deep learning. And suddenly it was doing tasks like handwriting recognition and voice recognition way better than had been done before. So that was, that was a huge advance. Uh, And then the next big advance came in 2017 when uh, the attention algorithms were developed that could do much more subtle kinds of things. And that's how, the very sophisticated uses of language came along. But one of the, interv- Hinton quit his job at Google because he'd been working for Google as well as the University of Toronto in order to be free to criticize these development because suddenly he got scared. And not just him, the three people who developed with deep learning were him and Yoshua Bengio in Montreal and Jan LeCun who works for Facebook. Um, and. Dengio and Hinton both have got scared once they saw what these models could do. Once they had early access to them, I didn't really see what the possibilities were until ChatGPT came available at the end of 2022. And frankly, I was astonished. I just published a book in 2021 called Bots and Beasts, talking about the limitations of deep learning models. Uh, And I didn't think it was impossible that they could get to more human-like behaviors, but I've predicted 20 or 30 years. Suddenly, two years later, there's ChatGPT, with whom I've had incredibly sophisticated philosophical and scientific uh, conversations. One of the things that shocked me the most is I discovered one day I said, "Well, you're very, very good at answering questions, but real intelligence is being able to generate questions. So I asked it to generate questions about unsolved problems, and did a beautiful job. I actually wrote a blog post about this as well. It would come up with ten or twenty questions that were really quite profound, some things I hadn't thought of myself. So obviously, you can generate questions. But let's go back to the Chomsky point: Can it really understand things? Can it really have causal explanations? Well. Hinton's take on this was really quite interesting. I forget which interview this was. It might've been with the New Yorker. He's been on all sorts of, of television shows as well. But what he said was really interesting. So it may be that if you really want a system to be trained to predict the next word, which is after all, all that these large language models do, it may well be that it can get better at that by building an internal model. I mean, that's what our brains do. We don't just deal with loose correlations. We build internal models of what's going on. And so Hinton's suggestion was, well, maybe, we don't really know, maybe, in fact, CHAP-GBT has got it these kinds of sophisticated causal models that work for people. If that's true, then Chomsky is wrong and Gopnik is wrong. I Frankly, I don't know. I, I'm trying to devise tests to try to get at that. So the kind of reasoning that goes into theory choice like Darwin is sometimes called abductive reasoning. So the question is, can computers do abductive reasoning? So I've given them various problems like uh, coming up with new hypotheses, even for tricky things like the cause of, of the COVID epidemic. Uh, where where did the where did the coronavirus come from and it generates hypotheses so it definitely seems to understand hypotheses and and also evaluation of hypotheses i once gave it a kind of covid based one and it gave me an answer that impressed the hell of me it sounded like an epidemiologist talking i've looked at the way that epidemiologists analyze causality in medicine understand it really pretty well can connect it up with explanatory coherence and chatgpt gave me this epidemiologist level analysis of the problem that i said to it. So definitely, there's some understanding going on there. Of what's it missing? Well, I've got a number of hypotheses about that that could be filled in. One big one is the role of the body. This is actually one of the insights that has come out of continental philosophy from Heidegger's work, that embodiment is important for human thinking. It took me a while to realize that until I got really interested in emotions. And emotions aren't just thoughts, they're also feelings, and the feelings come from things going on in our body. So I gradually realized that embodiment, which had been emphasized in the continental tradition, really is important. But we've got bodies, and that's a big part of our understanding of causality no matter how much probability theory you know or how much you know about regression or all that sort of stuff or statistics that you don't have a fundamental idea of causality unless you know what a push is and what a pull is because that's how every kid learns about causality some of it might be innate the way kant thought it was but in any case they learn it very quickly because you can move a rattle and it makes a sound or you can push a blanket and it moves and so i think pushing and pulling using our bodies is quite fundamental to our idea of causality. Could or already or does current AI have that? And that I, I don't know. I'm going to try to do some experiments to try to get at that. I asked uh, ChatGPT, what's the difference between a push and a pull? It gave me a great answer. A pull is bringing something towards you and pushing it away. Well, this is kind of difficult because ChatGPT just runs on a giant set of computers in, in California and it doesn't have a body, but already, there are robots that are being connected up with large language models. So if you've got robots, suddenly you've got pushes and pulls. So even if ChatGBT doesn't understand, understand pushes and pulls at the embodiment level now, it will very soon because, in fact, it's interacting with robots all the time. People are trying to make robots more effective at learning by making them tied in with large language models. So if ChatGBT is missing something now because it's not embodied, That's just a matter of time, because these models are becoming increasingly embodied because they're connected with robots, including things like driverless cars. So I think Chomsky's hypothesis is really interesting and might be true, but it's too soon to say. And in any case, it's a moving target because I think a lot of the embodiment aspects of causality are going to be things that ChatGBT and the other large language models have access to eventually. So even if Chomsky's right now, he's probably not right for long.
0: Yeah, in fact, professor, can I ask you one more question on the idea of embodiment? Just yeah, we've got about 5 minutes left is that, is that okay? Just one more question. Sure. Uh because I'm so glad you brought up uh uh embodiment. Uh Scott Aaronson, I've been reading his work recently and well, firstly, as you said, he said that most uh thinkers who made predictions on the limits of AI now have been wrong so who knows that could probably be the case with chomsky too but also uh he says uh the reason um well in one of his talks essentially the gist of his argument was if you look at contemporary ai uh, we've made a lot of progress in language models but not relative to that not as much progress in uh, physical ai so like self-driving cars for instance or robotics uh, also um and he says one reason for that could be because it's much harder to collect data on the physical environment uh, compared to uh, like more of an abstract uh, environment, which is like information. So, do you think that the the kind of the the fact that we haven't made progress more in embodied AI at the moment it's a a limitation of simply pure empirical data, or do you think we need a a different paradigm shift uh, in how we view AI? to make progress in, in uh, physical Well, th-
1: there, may, there may well be some f- huge new things yet to be discovered. When I wrote Bots and Beast published in 2021, I said there's probably some fundamental ideas required to make computational intelligence work. And then the idea of attention came along, the idea that you can use these means to consider a huge span of different parts of the data set and use vectors on operations on vectors to actually do something that's relevant and use that as part of how you train your neural network. I mean, that that was really a big, a big breakthrough. Uh, so that was one big idea. And there, there may, may well be other big ideas that are needed, but embodiment is already happening. As I said, if you consider um, Teslas, for example, there are millions of Teslas on the road and they're all heavily connected with software and they're all carefully connected with learning algorithms and they're all connected together through Tesla headquarters. <laughs> so I was trying to think, well, how could people have various scenarios about how uh, generative AI could conquer the world? And I was trying to come up with one. I thought, well, maybe I could take control of all the Teslas and, and, and work that. But I mean, you said that AI is behind, but I mean, te- Teslas are the self-driving cars have lots of flaws still, but they're actually amazing robots. They can get around pretty well. They do stupid things that humans wouldn't do, because, uh, but they but they also can put in millions of miles of of taxi service in San Francisco and other places that are really quite well. So as an accomplishment of in robotics, it's actually amazing. And there are lots of other kinds of robots that are being used in factories that are being tied in, as I said, with, so so all that's just starting and there probably are some major intellectual breakthroughs required for that as well. But the trajectory of AI in the last decade it's just astonishing. And I've been following AI since 1978. I've seen lots of ups and downs. And really what's happened in the last five years, I find quite jaw-dropping. And so that's why it can be suddenly become not just a science fiction thought experiment, but something of, what would happen if these machines actually became smarter than us? Um, That's not just my speculation, but the people who did the technology behind it, people like Jeff Hinton and Joshua Bengio have exactly the same worries because they are as astonished as I am as just how much can be done with these systems.
0: Indeed, indeed. Yeah, that's that's a, a good place to end with that open question, I believe. Uh, so, Professor, I know you said you're writing a book on consciousness, but just what other projects uh, are upcoming for you apart from that book?
1: Well, as I said, I'm doing the third draft right now, so I'll have that ready to share fairly, fairly shortly for uh, submission and also for comments. If anyone wants to be, uh, if we wanted, if anyone wants to see it, email me. Yeah, I find my w- website is paulstegard.com. It's easy to find with email. Um, so that's the big consciousness project, and I'm sure that will. I'll get comments that make me make it better. But what I'm planning to start this summer is, in fact, a book on the philosophy of generative ai because i think it, it it raises all these important questions that are around in cognitive science for decades i've got a funny title from it that comes from a poem that i asked a ai site called pi.ai i asked it to write a, a poem about generative ai and it came up with the following couplet it was uh, your circuits hum with thoughts so deep we ponder are we the shepherds or the sheep wow that's better than love. <laughs> so, yeah yeah, so so my working, my, yeah, that's so my working, working title for the book is shepherds or sheep. Now I actually don't see a scenario yet that could turn generative AI into are shepherds making us the sheep, but we can still be shepherds. So this is why I really like the efforts that are being made by Hinton and others to install regulation of AI. I mean, right now, AI is moving very rapidly and these huge companies are pouring vast amounts of money. They've got lots of clever people working for them, but it's potentially out of control. There are huge harms to be had. Maybe not immediately that'll it turn us into sheep, but certainly already it's a big problem with misinformation because it's really easy to generate all sorts of nonsense using these techniques. It just takes seconds. You can not only produce beautiful poems, but a whole kind of news story that's just made up that that ChatGPT will do for you. So misinformation's a big problem. Employment's a big problem. There's also sorts of people who can become obsolete. So there are really fundamental epistemological that is concerned with knowledge, reality, ethics, and even aesthetics questions coming out of generative eye. And so this summer, I plan to start a book on that.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm hoping that once you do publish those books, we could uh, have a discussion on again and and chat more, especially given it's a, it's a very contemporary topic, but also, as you said, it, it leads to a, a lot of deeper philosophical questions. Uh, but no thank you very much for your time professor i'm i'm very grateful for it
1: thanks for an interesting
0: conversation